Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest of our Isolation Insights. Uh, I'm Joe Rutter. I'm a Senior Research Fellow at UK and Changing Europe. And we're here to discuss where things have got to and where things are going. As we speak, there is a lot going on. Michel Barnier and David Frost are meeting again for the ninth round of negotiations, I think, but seemingly going nowhere. Maybe that's a bit too pessimistic. We'll hear about that from, uh, from our fantastic panel. Um, it seems that both sides are prepping up no deal. And indeed, we've just had Brandon Lewis this morning giving evidence to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee on what he's really going to do about that pesky Northern Ireland protocol and whether the government really is going to break the law. That's now a bit hypothetical. Um, meanwhile, the Prime Minister this afternoon is going to be talking about Brexit finally at the Liaison Committee. And as we speak, he's going head to head, not with Keir Starmer, but with Angela Rayner. Maybe, maybe, maybe she'll finally ask him something about Brexit as well, which hasn't featured in PMQs at all. So the Prime Minister's decided that he needs an insurance policy against EU intransigence, whether that's in the Joint Committee looking at the operation of the protocol or in the free trade agreement negotiations, no one's quite clear, and is looking for powers to overwrite the bits of the, the withdrawal agreement he signed that he doesn't like. MPs are going to be in the second day of Committee of the Whole House about that this afternoon. So for Brexit watchers everywhere who've been diverted onto other things, uh, Brexit is back and back with a vengeance. And that's why we're absolutely delighted to schedule today uh, a top panel. So joining me to discuss this are Katya Adler. Katya is the BBC Europe editor, known very well to all of you for her extraordinarily lucid explanations of what is going on uh, in Brussels and what uh, the EU is making of what the UK government is up to. We also have another member of the Brussels Press Corps, Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent of The Times. And our own and never to be replicated Rockstar professor himself, Anand Menon, who is coming back to Brexit after detours versus via the news quiz and great lives and other things like that to catch up on them if you want some light relief. And finally, uh, I'm delighted to be joined not by Stefan de Rink. Uh, in evidence of what is going on in Brussels, Stefan has had to pull out at the last minute to go to a meeting with Michel Barnier. Uh, I think we have to allow Stefan to do that, but he's uh, delighted that he's uh, persuaded David O'Sullivan to substitute for him. David has a massively long career in the European institutions, uh, DG Trade, former Secretary General of the Commission, and as the EU's ambassador to the US. So it's an absolutely top panel that we have for you. We're doing this on Slido, and there are, is an ability for you not just to post your own questions, please do, because I will run out very quickly, but please say which questions you want our panel not to be able to avoid by upvoting them. So please get questioning, get upvoting, and we'll come to as many questions as we can. And while these events are usually just an hour, we're gonna give you 25% more for your money by running through to 1.15. That does mean you'll miss the start of England, Australia, but I've already Sky Plused it, so if you want to take a bit of time out to do that, please do that too. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to move straight away to Katya. Katya, I think we were discussing this last time back in June, and you predicted a hot autumn. 
certainly in here in London with temperatures around 30 degrees, it is a literal hot autumn. Is it a metaphorical hot autumn in the Brexit talks too? Or is this actually going to all be a bit of a damp squib? Um, it is a hot autumn, as, as we all know, I think. And the Prime Minister was eager for it to be a, a hot summer. Uh, so he'd asked the EU to speed up negotiations. He said, if you remember, in June, he wanted to put a tiger in the tank of negotiations. Uh, and in fact, there were intense talks in July. Uh, the official sort of feedback on those talks were was that progress was made privately. The EU said it was a, it was a waste of time that they were willing to, uh, to to make compromises, and we're yet to see the same uh, from from the government enter into the autumn. Uh, and what we basically have, I think, is obviously the UK has left the EU. Did so on the thirty first uh, of January, but since these negotiations began to work out the future relationship, not only just trade. Uh, some progress has been made, the big sticking points remain, uh, mainly about competition regulations. Uh, the EU says, look, we can't give you UK uh, tariff-free, quota-free access to our single market and have you undercut our businesses in their own market. So you need to sign up uh, to some kind of agreed standards when it comes to environmental regulations, labor regulations, and the big whammy uh, state aid. And then of course, there are other big sticking points like the governance of the agreement. There has been some progress made on that. And on fishing rights for EU fishermen in UK waters after the end of the transition period. I think the general consensus uh, here in EU circles is if you find a solution on state aid, there are definitely sort of compromised positions that can be found on the other issues. Will they be found? Don't know. Can they be found? Yes. State aid is certainly a big sticking point. And these negotiations continue. We're in the middle this week of another informal round of negotiations while this row is raging over the UK's internal market bill. I think that uh, when the news broke uh, last Sunday night about the internal market bill and the government plans, which would see parts of the withdrawal agreement and very importantly, the Irish protocol agreed between the EU and Boris Johnson uh, under a year ago, that that would sort of see parts of it just sort of being overwritten. Um, I think there was a tendency in the UK media to say that the UK are threatening that uh, the, the trade negotiations will just dissolve over this row. Actually, the EU was careful. They keep talking about trust. My point there is that the EU is a big boy or girl on the world trade stage. It doesn't tend to do trade agreements on trust. There is a certain amount uh, sort of of emotion and theater in this and that they didn't have that much trust anyway in the Johnson government beforehand. But of course, you know, Trust does go a long way um, in, in negotiations, and that is definitely damaged at the moment. But the EU would still like to get a trade deal done this autumn. Yes, time is running out. Yes, there's the internet market bill row. Yes, they're not happy about it. But EU diplomats still say they really hope that a deal can still be reached this autumn. And that deal, if it's a tariff-free, quota-free deal, that will deal with a lot of the issues, concerns, if you like, about the Irish protocol as well. I can go into more detail about that uh, later, uh, but maybe I'll, I'll stop at that point. Oh, I can't hear you. You're, you're muted. The EU is, that's because I muted myself, so that was dopey. Uh, so the EU basically is going on as now. The Prime Minister, obviously, David, has accused um, the EU of negotiating 
in bad faith that actually they're not serious about a deal. They don't recognize that the UK will indeed be an independent coastal state, will be an autonomous sovereign nation, and is basically trying to undo Brexit through the back door. He's got a point, hasn't he, that actually the EU offered this Canada-style deal and seems to be rowing, rowing back. So he was right to take these measures in the internal market bill as a safety policy, uh, uh, safety insurance against that. David. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, you won't be surprised to hear that I, I don't share that view. Um, I mean, I think, you know, accusations of bad faith are the, the last refuge of all trade negotiators because uh, the answer is a trade negotiation is a tough negotiation where both sides ask for more than they know they're going to get. And then you, if you're successful, you find a compromise. So I think Katya's description of what's been happening is very accurate. Uh, the two sides are negotiating. Uh, each will say the other is not being sufficiently flexible. On the other hand, there is movement in the direction of what we would call landing zones or possible compromises. Uh, and Katya is right. I think the EU the EU view is that a deal is still possible. I have to say, nobody understands, except in terms of domestic politics, why we suddenly have this row over the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, none of this makes sense. Uh, the accusation of a food blockade is completely without foundation. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, the EU is simply saying, um, we need to know what are going to be the food standards that you apply because we have a process whereby we certify third countries. The UK needs to tick a few boxes. Nobody doubts for a moment that it will tick those boxes because they keep the same standards. There will not be a problem. But that needs to be, that formal bit needs to be done that hasn't been done. By the way, the EU doesn't yet know what conditions are going to be attached to our food export. The, the UK has not yet made clear what its uh, import requirements will be, and they will have to have them because they're a sovereign country. So nobody quite understands where, why this explosion has, has come from. Uh, people are frankly very shocked. And I, I mean, I, I say this in all sort of calmness and friendship, you should not underestimate something broke last week, which will not readily be fixed. Uh, and I say that particularly as an Irish person, but okay, we are where we are. Uh, the, the EU has said clearly that if this bill goes through in its present form, it is a breach of the agreement, which we solemnly uh, negotiated and ratified. We let to see what finally ends up in legislative ink, as opposed to drafts and amendments and so forth. And in the meantime, we continue to negotiate because we continue to believe that the best way out of this situation is for us to find uh, a mutually acceptable uh, free trade deal uh, along the lines which are, are currently in discussion. So David, couldn't Michel Barnier have just sort of decided to diffuse this last week by saying, Actually, there's absolutely no barrier at all to listing the UK as a third country for food. All it needs to do is tell us, you know, as will be the case, we're actually observing all EU rules as of the 1st of January. So list us, and he could have just said, the moment you send in that form, we'll, of course, just sign it off. And this is a complete non-issue. He seemed to be a bit more have, aggressive than that, I thought. That's what we have said. That's, that's the position. They have to, every third country that wishes to export food to the, to the EU has to be formally certified as a listed country. And there's a, there are a few boxes to tick. There's a form to be filled. There's a committee of member states who have to approve the application. You can't go to that committee until you've ticked your boxes. The UK, for the moment, has not presented the, the elements necessary to go to the committee and say, now the, the UK should be a third country which can export. But the minute that procedure is filled, there will be no problem. And nobody anticipates there will be a problem unless the, EU, the, the UK is 
planning somehow to deviate from uh, EU food standards, which they claim they're not. So I, frankly, nobody here understands why this has become an issue. So is the EU seeking actually a sort of firm commitment that the UK will not in the future deviate from EU food standards as opposed to what I think it asks of other third countries, which is just that you're currently compliant yeah. with EU food standards? The, the requirement is that in order to export, you have to meet these standards, you have to be certified. If you change your, if your standards change, it may be that you lose the listing. Uh, but it's not a commitment that you can never change your standards. That's a sovereign decision of all, of all countries exporting to the EU. And they're not asking for anything different to the, what they've asked for other third countries. And can you just explain, I mean, this other thing that's in this, that's actually in the Northern Ireland bill, as opposed to tariffs that the Prime Minister seemed to think were in the bill, but weren't when Ed Miliband was taking him to task uh, in the House on Monday night. Um, these export summary declarations, um, from Northern Ireland to GB. Obviously the Prime Minister has form on that by saying put these forms in the bin if you're asked to fill them in. So they're quite a big issue for the UK government. Why is this a hill that the EU appears to want to die on? That, you know, NI is after all uh, EU customs territory, but also in the UK's customs territory. That was one of the agreements in the withdrawal agreement. So why do export summary declarations really matter at the end of the day? I mean, these are rules that apply across the board to anyone exporting out of the EU single market. Uh, and for the purposes of the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland, you know, has a foot in each camp. It's part of the, the EU Customs Union, it's part of the UK Customs Union. If you want to export out of that area, you have to fill in these forms. That's the requirement. Uh, I don't really see why this is such a big deal because this was always known because the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol specifically says that all the procedures linked to the common customs uh, uh, procedures will be respected. Uh, so, you know, it's not that the EU is, is insisting on this more than on anything else. This is part of the rules which make it possible for Northern Ireland to be uh, an integral part of both the, the, the EU customs union and, and the UK customs union, which was the agreement which was reached. And if the UK, the UK can put forward its requirements uh, for what, however it wishes, the EU's requirements were well known. This was not something which, has, which was invented for the purposes of, of Northern Ireland. It's the normal procedure. And if the EU is so fussed about what the UK government's doing, why? Okay. Jill, you seem to have frozen. You might want to leave and come. David, what I suggest is we're going to leave you in peace for a moment. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, when Jill comes back, or if Jill wants to send me the message via the chat function, we can, we can figure out what her question was going to be. Uh, but I suppose, Bruno, we'll, we'll turn to you now. And I suppose the first question is, are you convinced by what David said? That actually this was all very predictable. Uh, it was always there from the start. What's the big deal in the UK for things we always knew were going to be the case? Um, well, it, yes, it's, it's always been there right from the start. It's come up before in, in, in the first phase of negotiations on the um, withdrawal um, agreement. What, what My back. the UK says, what, what Frost says, is that this came up um, in negotiations. I don't think negotiations directly between him and Michel Barnier, um, but this came up in negotiations and an explicit, quote, reference was made um, to... 
um, Northern Ireland. Now, Barnet himself last week, after the negotiating round, said there were many uncertainties over the future of, of, of British uh, food standards, something which, of course, the British deny. They've got an agricultural bill, agricultural bill that anyone can read um, at the moment. So the issue of SPS does seem to have become one that has flared up. The EU side says it's completely bonkers to suggest that they explicitly mentioned it in reference to Northern Ireland. But it does seem to be something that did actually happen. But we are, as, as David alluded to, we are at that stage um, in the talks when people sort of throw their toys out the pram, um, perhaps where, where there are issues, where, where there are questions that are essentially unilateral on the EU side or on the UK side, such as fishing, people tend to use them perhaps in certain other discussions with, with a certain amount of leverage. But certainly something seems to have happened um, in this regard. And if you look at the Twitter exchange between uh, Michel Barnier and David Frost at the weekend, there seems to be, um, there seems to be a bit of bad blood there. And presumably when uh, Barnier and Frost actually uh, uh, meet this week, tomorrow, um, that is going to be something, um, something that they uh, talk about. But behind the scenes, behind the SPS row, behind the inflammatory language of, of fluid blockades, which, which people like Gérard Arroda, former French ambassadors, described as the a food blockade would be an act of war. It's, it's very emotive language. is behind that and behind the big row, um, there does seem to be um, some negotiating going on. Very interesting. Uh, what about fish, Bruno? We hear uh, that people think there's potentially a deal coming on fish and that the UK has moved on fish. Are you picking that, that up or is it still the absolute deal breaker that it's looked like in the past? Um, it's still difficult because the, the difficulty, because it is, is talking about the quota numbers um, and that is difficult. So there's reports um, that the UK has talked about uh, a phasing in uh, mechanism. Gove said, uh, Michael Gove said back in May that Britain wouldn't switch the lights off suddenly um, for European boats. So perhaps um, it would make sense if, if Britain has tabled some sort of proper phasing in mechanism. There have also been reports that Britain is being more amenable to access on the 12 mile rule to uh, European boats and Channel Islands. The government's pushing back, particularly on the Channel Islands. Um, and you talk to people here and they say, well, the briefings came from a couple of member states who are very, very keen for negotiations to continue. Um, and they're telling other European countries that continues, the negotiations must continue at all costs. One of those countries, because they've been public about it, um, is, is Italy. So I was talking to someone this morning who said, um, you know, hope dies last um, into, in, in reaction to the idea there'd been a breakthrough on fishing. I don't think there has been a breakthrough uh, on fishing because you've got to talk quota numbers. That will always be done um, at the end of the day. It always needs to be something to be pre-cooked to a certain extent because you're talking about listings of 100 species that affect at least eight, uh, eight European member states. So, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But I really do think the actual numbers will be, uh, will be left until last. So I don't, think, I don't really think there's been a breakthrough on the fishing, but it, I think what you're seeing here is, is some European governments who are keen to stress that negotiations are still going on and they want negotiations to carry going on. And Bruno, I'm not sure whether it's you, Katia or David wants to come on this, but um, Michel Barnier repeatedly accused the UK of asking for more than Canada 
Japan, South Korea, particularly on some of the services asks on things like mutual recognition, professional qualifications, short-term business, visas on road transport, arguably a bit more of an interest, uh, an issue between the UK and the EU than EU Canada, where it's not a major source of connectivity. Do you get the sense that the UK's dropped all these sort of add-ons and really, really, we're, if there is a deal, it's just going to be a super thin, bare-bones deal on tariff, no tariffs, no quotas, and really nothing much more? I think it will be a thin deal, but I think some of those elements that you talked about will remain um, because there are also some strong European uh, interests at play there in terms of professional qualification, French accountants working in London, um, or um, uh, road, capital, road haulage capitage, uh, for example, where there is also strong uh, European um, interest. I think what the focus is on, though, is these big, big issues, particularly, as, as Katya highlighted, the issue of state aid, which in proper English is, is subsidy policy. So what is going to be Britain's policy on subsidies, how is the question of subsidies and future subsidy policy or how you deal with subsidies going to be written into a free trade agreement? And particularly, how do you govern it? How do, you, um, how do countries that, that can show that they're at a disadvantage uh, get remedies? How do you police it? I, my bet will be that, that the governance, um, enforcement uh, and policing is actually the really big issue where, 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 where everything is coming together at the moment. But the EU has moved away from dynamic alignment with EU rules. I mean, this is now a UK regime that's transparent and enforced in some way, rather than a sort of idea that we stick with EU rules. That's right. And the, I mean, the EU is, has, has moved away from quite a few of what Michel Barnier himself has called maximalist positions. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, you know, they're, they're, the internal, market, the internal market bill is a problem. State aid is a very big problem in, in these negotiations. But I still think that everybody needs to take a big step back and see the bigger picture. As we have been saying already now, you do expect a certain amount of drama and sound and light uh, in the negotiations. Sabre rattling, call it what you will. Threatening to break international law goes way past saber rattling you know for, for for many and this is definitely a low point in the in sort of relations between the two sides but the eu still believes that boris johnson would prefer a deal for many reasons uh, the eu definitely prefers a deal and even though it looks like it will be a, a thin free trade agreement and um, you know there's all sorts of coffee analogy being used now like a skinny fta and um, those who say look it's still worth having the deal say well that's because you can have it in place afterwards to build up on that doesn't mean dragging the uk back into the single market necessarily what it means is for example when you know in all these years now where we've been talking about brexit when we have phone-ins from you know bbc audiences one of the main questions they want to know is about pet travel you know what happens after brexit can i travel with my pets mm -hmm. or if i'm on holiday in france and i get ill can i have access to healthcare? this is not being discussed now but if there is a trade deal in place it's very easy to continue discussions onwards i think one of the reasons that the eu is so keen to have a deal although it says, as the UK says, not at any price, is partly for economic reasons, obviously, but also for geopolitical reasons, because especially somebody like Angela Merkel looks at Russia, looks at China, is 
you know, nobody knows exactly where, where the United States is going politically and says this is not a time to have an acrimonious divorce um, with a best friend um, and, and our neighbor. And for that reason, it's easier if you have a deal to keep talking if there's an acrimonious no deal situation, even though inevitably the both sides will come back to a table of some sort at some time, it won't be from one day to the next. Anand, I'm gonna to come to you um, with a really difficult question from Jeff Horn, which requires you to look inside the mind of number 10. He okay. just asked, do the panelists think that the behavior of the Johnson government since January, so not just in the last week, suggests no deal was always the most out likely outcome? Is that really what they're aiming to do? I mean, it suggests to me that it's an outcome that number 10 were willing to live with and probably more willing to live with than I would suggest Theresa May ever really was. Uh, but I don't think it means that this is their preferred outcome. And I agree very much with Katya on this, that actually what continues to give me hope in these talks is the fact that both sides would prefer to have a deal than not have a deal. And that will keep them negotiating. And I think this is partly a matter of geopolitics, as Katya says. I mean, the, the spiral of mutual recrimination that would come out of no deal will sour relations, not just UK, EU, but UK and the 27 individually for a while to come. Uh, but also politically, I think, for Boris Johnson, it still seems to me that the win is to sign a deal. Uh, and I keep thinking back to this time last year when a deal, people were saying, you know, there'd be no withdrawal agreement, it's too hard. Uh, and then Boris Johnson sold himself as having pulled off the impossible by getting a deal and it played to his benefit politically. So I think in, I think there is, there's probably a difference of opinion in number 10. Looking, looking on from the outside, I sense that there are some people who are more comfortable with no deal than others. But I still think that ultimately for this prime minister, if he can preserve enough of his red lines, he really would like to get a deal. Because I think apart from minimizing the economic damage, there are real political benefits from that as well. Very interesting. We've got a question here from Anonymous. Hi, Anonymous. Um, which is just asking, uh, I'm asking it because it mentions Overton windows. I love Overton windows. Uh, so I'm going to push this to you, Anand, because you'll know what that is. If there is no deal up to mid-2024, might the Overton window open up wide enough for an incoming Labour government to put, the, to, put to the people the option of, e, of EU re-accession? Labour's been very quiet on quite what it's expecting to come out of these talks. Where do you think they might be going on this, Anand? It is interesting. I mean, there is that strand of thought. I remember a speech that John McDonnell gave a few years ago where he sort of let slip the line, you know, the more the disruption caused by Brexit, the bigger the opportunities or something along those lines. That's to say that, you know, the more messy this is, the larger the Overton window, the larger the range of possible policy remedies becomes. But on rejoin, I think absolutely the opposite. For me, the spillover from a no deal outcome is both sides finger pointing and you enter a sort of circle of mutual recriminations that make it very, very hard to actually do business with each other, let alone for us to think about rejoining. I think the atmosphere will be soured to such an extent that that would essentially be unthinkable in the short to medium term. That's really interesting. David, um, I just wanted to ask you one thing about the EU seeing fish as a potential deal breaker. We've got an interesting question from Paul Lever. Um, Paul's asked whether the EU accepts in the event of no agreement, no boat from any EU state will have the right to catch fish in the UK's territorial waters. Um, I think emphasis there is on the right to do that. But surely no deal on fish is the worst of all possible outcomes from the EU fishermen 
that Michel Barnier in, and maybe President Macron, people are trying to protect? I don't think no deal is good for anyone, frankly. I mean, you know, it, 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 it may be what we have to live with because we, we, have, we can't agree. Uh, but I think everyone agrees for, and that's why a deal is, should be mutually beneficial, that there are trade-offs and benefits and gains and compromises to be made by both sides. So that's why, that's why the EU from the very beginning has said that they want to, they want to negotiate a deal. Now, of course, they, they have their asks and probably, uh, and certainly they're not going to get all of their asks, just as the UK won't get all of their asks. And probably we are unfortunately moving towards maybe a thinner uh, outcome, but I agree completely with Katja and, and Annan that the, the importance is not to have a complete breakdown of the relationship and to keep talking. But on fish, yes, it's, it's a fair point, and that's well, well recognized on the EU side. It's, it's one of the reasons why we'd like a deal. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that in order to get a deal for fisheries, we'll give in on all the other things, because they also have constituencies uh, which need to be protected in one way or another. That's uh, very interesting. Um We've had quite a lot of people citing, uh, maybe this is for you, Katya, um, citing what the UK appears to have signed up to in its new trade deal with Japan, where people are saying, I think the Financial Times are reporting that the UK had agreed for more, to more stringent level playing field conditions in the, its deal with Japan. And Liz Truss was given, being given a bit of grief on this in the floor of the Commons the other day. Um, compared to what it was prepared to offer the EU. And um, how far is the EU actually looking at the sort of minutiae of what the UK is offering other countries in trade deals? I think we need some comments about what it's got on climate change and its uh, mandate for the US deal. I think the EU is very concerned with itself. And if you have a look at the world of trade deals, the EU is sort of a very big player and, and sort of tends to kind of set the tone in trade deals along with the United States and perhaps to you know, a lesser extent, maybe a, a country like you know, Brazil or something, which became then a bigger player in the WTO. But the EU is used to sort of setting rules and regulations. Its main concern is protecting its single market. And that's what it came down to with the Northern Ireland backstop. If you, um, excuse me for bringing you back to, to, to those days, you know, the, 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 the reason that there was in the end um, an agreement on the withdrawal agreement um, was because the EU could see a way through with Boris Johnson, where it went back to kind of its original idea on how to avoid a border on a hard border on the island of Ireland, and um, by having you know a customs border down the Irish Sea. In so doing, it could say we're protecting you know the Northern Ireland peace process and we're protecting our single market. And again, when it comes to these competition regulations, state aid, the environment, labour regulations, and so on, it wants to protect its single market. It wants to protect its businesses. And again, it's worth thinking about it this way. This is not just about EU-UK. This is about the EU and its current trade partners. For example, when it comes to the Internal Markets Bill, the EU has to be seen to be taking a stand, not only on the withdrawal agreement and to protect that, but also to send a message to other countries it has trade agreements with and say, don't you think of messing with agreements we've already made with you? And it also wants to send a very clear message to its member states who are perhaps not always so keen on the rule of law. I'm thinking perhaps of Poland or perhaps of Hungary. So that's why the EU is taking um, a, a tough stance. Of course, you know, it's notable what the Financial Times reported about the UK-Japan uh, agreement, but the EU has a very clear idea about its bottom lines when it comes to competition regulations and how it wants to protect and be seen to be protecting its single market. So, Katia, you mentioned the possibility of sort of EU legal action. Mary Madden's asked, 
whether we should really be taking the threat of legal action by the EU on the UK internal market bill seriously. I don't know when it comes come in on that. Bruno, do you think we should be taking that seriously? A bit of sabre rattling from the Commission. Uh, well, the Commission's legal advice is they've got the grounds to do it, you know, now. Um, and I think the, uh, that means that there will be some kind of legal action um, at the end uh, of the month on the grounds of uh, good faith and the grounds of Article uh, 4. I think that's inevitable, whatever Britain does um, on the uh, uh, internal market bill, which, of course, uh, itself doesn't overwrite um, the dispute settlement and, 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 and means by which the EU can get remedies um, under the uh, withdrawal uh, under the withdrawal uh, agreement. So will they wait until they uh, until the bill gets royal assent, or will they uh, do it earlier? Do you think? Well, I've said the end of the month. End so, of the month. Okay, so it shouldn't be through then. You can see Anna. the round round nine of the negotiations takes uh, takes place um, on the from twenty eighth. Of September, so that that, 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 that will be the, the site and the timetable um, for, 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 for what happens next on the internal market bill. And we, as we've seen um, in London, there's a bit of um, there's talks and and certainly some signals that the government is backing away in certain uh, regards, to maybe try and tighten up the legality or or, or the degree of the illegality, um, depending on your viewpoint um, of this particular. Um, legislation and, it, and again it is as a negotiating task it is interesting because it has pulled attention um, away from some of the big issues um, in the negotiations which aren't just about the uh, traditional trade uh, defences that the EU always asks to defend um, the single market um, but which are unique um, to Britain um, because of its geographical proximity the fact that it was um, in the uh, EU, and I think you know the Frost has got a point when he says many of the EU's uh, demands do impinge on 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 uh, British sovereignty, and would in effect um, and with intent um, bind uh, future policy um, decisions. And it again is interesting that this current row as a negotiating tactic certainly has pushed Brexit um, up the agenda. Europe ministers will discuss next week. Uh, whether it gets discussed at the next summit next week in uh, in Brussels, so it certainly has had the effect of uh, making the salience of Brexit pushing it up the agenda, and it also has created a, 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 a even if it's gone uh, gone askew and has upset people, it's created a certain amount of political space domestically um, for some of the other dif difficult discussions to be pre-cooked in the secrecy of the negotiating rooms. And that, so, and that's, that's, uh, sorry, oh, Katia, Katia, come in. Uh, just very briefly, I was just going to say that's the glass half full interpretation in Brussels, which is you'll hear EU diplomats say, if all of this row about the internal market bill is... Uh, the government, okay, trying to kill various birds with um, with one stone, but in that, in order to create sort of political space, or if you like, uh, a robust defence against uh, those in the Conservative Party who don't want any concessions with the EU to say, look, we tried, you know, we stood up there, we tried to stand up there. So the EU, so the EU thinks that if all of this is being done in order to give the Prime Minister space to make concessions, it's unpleasant, but so be it. Because the eye, you know, the eyes are on the prize here in Brussels, and that is an eventual trade agreement this autumn. So, Anand, do you think this is all just tactics? And do you think the government anticipated the reaction that it 
got because after all this came out in a rather unfortunate way from the government's point of view we assume with a leak to peter foster probably not top of their list of people to leak to um and i've got a question from tony smith about whether the lords can actually stop this bill we've heard from the lords howard and lamont that they're not very enthusiastic about it and they were likely to be some of the people the government might have thought would support it I think virtually everything this government does at the moment is tactics. It's very, very hard to discern the outline of strategy uh, from number 10 at the moment. It is quite reactive, uh, doesn't seem to have sort of thought through longer term plans. So, yeah, I think a lot, a, an awful lot of what is going on is tactical. They absolutely didn't want the leak to happen when it did. I don't think this was a deliberate leak of something. I think it messed up their timetable, the fact that the Financial Times got hold of this uh, when it did. Uh, it being a tactic, I'm not sure it's been fully thought through. Uh, what Brandon Lewis said in the House of Commons apparently had been, you know, cleared with number 10. So it wasn't a case of him misspeaking when he said what he said about international law. I think sometimes you do, we're in danger sometimes of sort of of, of, of doing the sort of Cummings as Superman interpretation of government and always looking for some very, very sophisticated plot line that we haven't quite got hold of. I think there's a large element of cock-up to this. And one recurring element of cock-up to this is the fact that the government hasn't got a handle on its own backbenchers, doesn't have the kind of relations with them it needs to have, and therefore was slightly taken aback by something it really shouldn't have been taken aback by in terms of the reactions it it, the, the, the Brandon Lewis's statement led to. David. On, yeah. I just wanted to, I mean, I, I, Bruno and, and Katja, I, I, I agree with you. I think that is a view here that, you know, if this is just gesticulation in order to eventually facilitate uh, getting a deal, uh, so be it. But I, 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 again, I think I said this at the beginning, but I really want to emphasize it. You should not underestimate the, the shock there is at the tactic being used. The, the nature of the language, uh, the, the things said about the EU, which are frankly untrue and unfair, and the fact that a British government would take upon itself the right to rewrite the terms of an international agreement on which the ink is barely dry has deeply shocked people. And that is, you know, we will pick up the pieces. If we fix this, we'll move on, we'll do a deal. But people are deeply, deeply shocked that we are in this situation. And if this is a tactic which was somehow meant to people think, oh, now we need to do, make bigger efforts to do a deal with, 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 this, with this British government, I think people are actually, some people are saying, well, is a deal going to be worth the paper it's written on? Because what are we we're going to find that Mr. Johnson next year will decide that the, the FTA uh, it wasn't what he thought it was at all and, and the British Parliament will, will want to rewrite it. So. Uh, in my view, I, I, I think it, it was the wrong stick to try and use to, to beat up this situation if that was the plan. But OK, we are where we are. We see where we end up. But uh, please. And, and David, David, will it change the substance of the deal that the EU is prepared to do? I mean, we're already talking at the sort of skinny to almost sort of no milk end of the deal, the, maybe an Americano deal or whatever on the skinny latte. But will the fact that the UK has done this actually make the EU more wary about what it's prepared to concede in a deal and make it harder maybe for Michel Barnier to persuade member states it's worth moving? I don't think it will change the, the substance of the negotiating position. It may make the issue of dispute settlement more, more contentious because people are beginning to realise you need solid dispute settlement in any deal with this UK government. But no, I don't think people will, uh, will be influenced in this in terms of, of 
what they're prepared to do as a compromise if the UK is able to move in, in, in certain directions. So, uh, you know, respectfully, the EU is a very adult organization and we're, we're kind of taking this very calmly. Uh, people have not tried to escalate the rhetoric uh, or, 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 or return the, the sort of inflammatory language. You notice even the Irish have been relatively low key because nobody wants to escalate this, this dispute, recognizing it has a lot of roots in, in domestic British politics, as, as Anand said and, and Bruno. But, I, you know, we, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it easier to, 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 to find a solution. To me, that's absolutely clear. But uh, we, will, we will see whether on the substance we can get the movement to, to, to find a, a common position that works for both sides in, 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 in the next few weeks. I, I think it's still possible, uh, but only if we can somehow fix this um, uh, internal market bill issue in, in, a, in a way that actually works. Okay, I'm going to move away from this in a second, but we've still got a couple more questions. Um, Anand, John Peets asked whether this actually is uh, not just maybe purchasing a deal with the EU, maybe it's creating space for it, but what's the impact on a potential trade deal for instance, with the US? I think the, the importance in terms of implications for the US lies not in the symbolism of the internal market bill, but rather lies in what happens over Northern Ireland. I think the politics of the US around the Irish border and around the Good Friday Agreement are where this is going to land us in trouble. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that the US will say, oh, look, the British Parliament is threatening to break its international commitments. And so I think it's going to be down more to the matter of substance over Northern Ireland as Nancy Pelosi and some of the language emanating from the Biden camp around this was quite striking I have to say it wasn't it wasn't uh they weren't hedging at all they made it absolutely clear that they were a annoyed and b that this would have implications on their position when it came to a possible UK e, uh, US deal. And clearly Theresa May made that great quite impassioned thing about who's going to trust the UK ever again if we sign up to things if we throw we'll just sort of throw them in the bin when they're inconvenient do you think it will have wider ramifications beyond that very specific deal with the US? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which this threw me was I'd always assumed that one of the ways in which Boris Johnson proved to sort of was, was going to try and underline his sort of one nation credentials was via a sort of liberal internationalist foreign policy. That is to say that Britain was going to be the country that stood up for international law, uh, that was high, you know, hugely international, was going to play the role it played over Hong Kong, for instance. It was a very striking thing, the, the offer of those visas to Hong Kong in return for Chinese action. But it does strike me that, that, un that this undercuts that. It's far, far harder for us to wag our finger at other international lawbreakers. When a government minister has stood up in Parliament and said, yeah, under certain circumstances, we are planning to break international law. So it does have an implication to our future foreign policy in that way. Okay, we've got loads of questions. I'm going to go to some of the top ranked questions that you're all up voting there, having spent a bit of time on the Internal Markets Bill. Let's try and park that for, for a few minutes. John Tully's asked, um, and I think uh, people have mentioned this before, are we in for another transition? Uh, John Tully's asked, you know, is it possible if we reach an agreement that there'll be some sort of implementation period? I think every day we hear stories that this bit isn't quite ready. And obviously the UK has already, uh, already announced some unilateral moves to lessen the bureaucracy at the border into the UK for the first six months. Katia, is there any prospect that we're gonna get, a, uh, get another transition out if we do get a deal? Um, there were definitely whispers of it. They've 
they've gone silent at the moment, uh, to be honest. I think um, it really depends. You know, the common wisdom is, or the Prime Minister says the deal has got to be done by the 15th of October in, in, you know, in order to have time to, uh, you know, to get it passed by the Parliament in the UK, by the European Parliament as well. Uh, the EU is saying early November at the earliest. I think if it seems that a deal can be done, but it gets pushed into late November or something like that, then you know, clever lawyers on both sides, I'm sure, can come up with some sort of idea as to how it could be ratified uh, into 2021. Nobody even wants to go near that at the moment, to be honest, Jill. Seriously, you know, the focus right now is, can we keep at the same table? And if this is going to fall apart, neither the UK nor the EU wants to be the first one to walk away at the table. We're sort of there. And so the idea of adding on an implementation period at the end, which is something that had been sort of talked about, but, you know, behind, behind, behind the scenes uh, during the course of this year has, has, has pretty much gone silent. Equally, the idea that, you know, the government said the transition period has to end at the end of this year. We're not going to continue negotiations um, into 2021. It would mean continuing to pay into the EU budget. It's not something we can countenance. Again, earlier in the year, there were back, back, back whispers as to, look, if it gets really late, could the government change their mind? And even though the withdrawal agreement, you know, says that this is now signed and sealed and we're, we're ending the transition at the end of the year, could clever lawyers come up with an idea of extending it? I think that idea is politically poisonous to the government, so it's unlikely. It would be difficult to do. But I think if there's will on both sides to extend either the current transition period, I think this is very unlikely, by the way, or to kind of create a sort of an implementation period. If there's a will, there would be a legal way found, I think, because both sides really want to deal and lawyers can always find loopholes. But we're so far away from, from looking at that right now, I think. I mean, the other thing that I think Boris Johnson said, didn't he, was that if we ended up, you know, he declares on the 15th of October, there's not gonna be a deal that there might be scope for some mini deals, side deals. And when we were facing the prospect of a no deal on the withdrawal agreement, the EU announced a bunch of unilateral measures. Bruno, are you picking up any indications that the EU is gonna do that again? And will Obviously, we know in time? We can of course take unilateral measures if it wants to because you know, the giveaways in the word uh, unilateral. Um, so, you know, countries can in the event of no deal, take these unilateral measures. This, this time around, it would be a bit different because uh, one would have the withdrawal treaty or, or most of it. It wouldn't quite be the same scenario uh, as no deal um, last year. So you would imagine in the time left, if, if it was to go that way, um, at the end of the year, if the two sides are still talking to each other, um, that they would um, agree some, some mitigating um, aspects. But the EU and the UK would be very, very careful in terms of any unilateral measures or any certainly any negotiations to mitigate no deal, but it wasn't selling the pass for some uh, future um, negotiation. There are, for example, unilateral EU decisions coming up before the end of the year that are very important, financial, uh, financial markets equivalents, financial services equivalents, state of protection uh, equivalents. There's quite a lot coming up on the EU side that are important um, unilateral uh, decisions. And as the EU showed last year, uh, with Switzerland, it backfired on them rather badly, but it tried to use financial equivalence uh, decisions, supposedly a technical uh, decision as political leverage in a trade uh, negotiation. So it's, it's always possible that those decisions themselves, unilateral decisions, um, can become uh, weighted um, with uh, demands. But certainly if there is no um, 
I think if there is no a sign of a deal um, into late October, then I think both the UK and EU sides will have to start doing more than their own preparations. They will have to start talking to each other much more frankly about what exactly happens. Can I just come in, Jill? Plausible. Uh, do you want to come in? Yeah, just a couple. I mean, firstly, shame on you, Jill, for saying mini deals, because as Bruno just pointed out, they're not mini deals. They're the unilateral actions. And secondly, I, I was quoting from the. Prime <laughs> Minister, you know? I'm going to hang my head in shame. <laughs> Good. And secondly, there seems. I mean, the sense I'm getting is there's less appetite on the EU side for this than there was this time last year. Uh, and I, th I detect a slight sense on the EU side of a desire to make the pip squeak in the event that this goes wrong, which hasn't been helped by the theatrics of this week. So there might be some limited stuff. I suspect it'll be more limited than last time. And just very, very quickly on transition, going back to what Katya said, I think I disagree. I don't think we could. Uh, yes, I know. I mean, I say it too. Lawyers always find a way. They don't necessarily also. And I think we're in danger of losing sight of just how unique the legal framework of the withdrawal agreement and transition were. I mean, this notion that you could essentially stay inside the single market in the customs union, not as a member state, that you would have this one-off chance to extend is absolutely unique in EU law. And I just wonder, even if there was the political will, how that could be duplicated uh, outside of the framework of Article 50, which it would have to be. So I, I'm... I'm not as confident, Katya, I know you didn't sound overly confident, but I'm not even as confident as you that that would prove to be possible, to be honest. I, I agree with Anand on that point very strongly. And David, um, if um, I don't know where you see on the sort of uh, possible contingency arrangements, but somebody's asked whether if, for example, the government of Ireland wanted to do some things to make the uh, border with Northern Ireland more workable, you know, say in services, driving licenses, some of these things. Um, would it need to be authorised by the Commission to have talks with the UK government to put in place some bilateral deals? Is that how it would work? Is that sort of likely to try and just ease it for the citizens of both the Republic and Northern Ireland who just but it, it know, would depend the border in, on a daily basis? It would depend entirely on, on what the issue was. I mean, there are quite extensive bilateral deals between the UK and Ireland about the, the respective rights of citizens in both countries. Uh, you can vote very quickly. You can become a citizen very easily. Uh, you know, so there, there are bilateral arrangements. The, if, they, if any of the issues which arose concerned something at European level, then the Irish would not be able to negotiate that uh, on their own. So things like mutual recognition of driving licenses, which is governed by a, an EU uh, arrangement, uh, would probably have to be handled by the Commission. And the Irish have been you know, very, very assiduous in saying we are not going to be sucked into a bilateral negotiation about anything that touches on European matters. That is for the European uh, designated negotiators to manage. We will make our position clear. We will, you know, push for whatever flexibilities are available, but we will, we will leave the negotiations to the European level where they hold the responsibility. Um, know, we've got a question for Katia, maybe, from, uh, from our colleague, Tim Bale, who, I don't know why he just doesn't ask us this some other time, but he's asked, what's the sort of point of no return of all the deadlines? We've, uh, we've had Boris Johnson say the 15th, Michel Barney, I think, uh, is threatening Halloween 2, the 31st of October. Uh, we're told the EU needs time to ratify. So when is the real, real drop-dead date? Is it the 30th of December or quite what? 
the transition period ends on the 31st of December legally, that's it. So unless there was a new way found of extending or finding a, a ratification period after that time, or, you know, for now, in law, that's when the transition period ends. So, you know, both sides say it's got to end by this point or that point. And the idea being Boris Johnson says, oh, you know, we need to give business certainty. Well, frankly, it's kind of late for that. Uh, he'd also given a deadline of the summer earlier. Now it's the 15th of October. Uh, the EU had also said the end of October. Now it's saying the beginning of November. Or the, the transition period ends legally on the 31st of December. It needs to, you know, any deal needs to be ratified before then, unless something is found in order to give extra time for that. So, so that is the bottom line. I also, I just wanted to add, if I might, two, two things to think about. First of all, when it comes to like member states, um, Brexit is just not top of their list right now. Um, you, you're in the middle of the German presidency. I know the UK said, oh, well, you know, Angela Merkel really wants a deal. And of course we keep always, the, you know, those German car makers always make an appearance back in, in, um, in, in government uh, speech or, or backbenchers, uh, conservative backbenchers talking about why the EU would want a deal. Um, but I think um, you, you even had the, the president of the European Commission giving her State of the Union speech mm -hmm. today. Uh, Brexit came very, 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 very low down the list. And of course, EU countries don't want to be seen to be giving Brexit too much prominence. That is also sort of a political diplomatic issue. But in real terms with COVID-19 and domestic politics, it is not featuring massively high. So even though there is like, you know, member states are appalled at the internal markets bill and the current discussion going on in the United Kingdom, yes. But they're not all sitting in a, in a worried huddle as to what do we do next? They are leaving this in the hands of Michel Barnier for now and they are hoping that, you know, that a deal is possible. And the other thing is when it comes to fishing is not to forget not only UK domestic politics, but the domestic politics of EU countries as well. France, for example, Emmanuel Macron is thinking already of the French presidential elections in 2022. He's anyway enjoyed having the public images of the Brexit bad guy. And he's not going to be the one who's going to say, oh, you know what, fishing, yeah, do whatever you want, UK, that's fine. Because politically, he can't. But also for Macron, fishing is not going to be the issue that he would allow a deal with the UK to fall down over. This is, this is absolutely for sure. But he cannot be seen to be giving up on fishing in public. But privately, he is, would be more open to compromise but each member state is going to be thinking of their own domestic politics in this debate as well. But Katia, I'm just quite intrigued on that I'm going to come to other people about whether they think there is a sort of date when Tim can book his holiday afterwards because Brexit will either definitively be done or not done. Uh, I've just lost Anand um, so I won't ask him. Uh, is there a politician who could make a big difference? We had Varadka last year unlocking the way to a deal um, David, are there any sort of politicians that maybe British, um, British Boris Johnson should be thinking he needs to go for a, for a sort of honeymoon walk with uh, in a repeat of the Thornton Huff Manor bilateral well, last year? Yeah, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol was a very particular thing. And I think, you know, the other leaders were happy to let Varadkar have a bilateral discussion with Boris Johnson about that if it, if it, was, if it was going to be productive as, as it was. Though now we see that it didn't apparently quite mean what we all thought it meant at the time. Um, I, you know, I am sure that the British government is reaching out to member states all the time. But I think uh, what is important is that, uh, just as Katia has said, 
Um, there is full support, support for Michel Barnier. There's full support for, for von der Leyen, von der Leyen uh, and Charles Michel. Uh, people don't want to get involved bilaterally with the UK in trying to negotiate this stuff. They, they may have their views. They, they may, they, there may be nuances between them, uh, but they are very, very united. I have never seen the degree of unity uh, in the EU, because I mean, disunity is what we do best sometimes. Uh, but I've never seen the degree of unity that is there and the degree of support. And Michel Barnier has done a superb job of keeping member states 100% informed all the time. So they feel very, very comfortable. They know that he knows exactly their views. They know exactly what he's negotiating. They see every bit of paper. So they have full confidence in him. And I think the, the persistent message I pick up in, in, in British circles, oh, well, we need to bypass Michel Barnier now and go to that. I can tell you the last thing the heads of state and government, and I've attended European councils for six years, the last thing they want is to have to have a detailed debate about Brexit around the European Council table. They want a, a, a packaged deal delivered to them that they can say yes or no, and they want to move on to other things. On the timing, um, look, it is somewhere around the first, the first two weeks of November. After that, in my view, it becomes very difficult. Assuming you have a legal text in the first two weeks of November, then yes, I think the European Council, uh, the member states can approve it, the parliament can ratify it, uh, and the British, the British Parliament can ratify it. So we don't have a legal vacuum uh, when the transition ends at the, at the end of December. Anything less than that, and it gets very, very difficult to imagine how you would, how you would just go through those hoops. So I, you know, if, you, if you want a date for me, it's, it's sort of the 15th of November. I think past that, it really does get very difficult. Okay, Tim, take a note of that. It's 15th of November, and after that, uh, you're safe. I want to go slightly, in the last 15 minutes, I want to go to some of the slightly longer term questions that are coming through, and apologies, people, we haven't got to your details. We'll try and pick them up elsewhere. Um, maybe, Anand, uh, start with you on this. Um, Marco Fugaccia is saying, is the UK government prepared to sacrifice the union to achieve the sort of Brexit they want? Similar question. This is the most popular question on Slido from Podrick O'Brien. Hope that's pronounced okay. Looks nervously at David. Brexit is delivered. Why is English nationalism accommodated, whereas in Scotland it is denied, in Northern Ireland postponed, and in Wales disparaged? That sounds like one of Tim Bale's uh, questions for a British politics 2020 exam question. But would you like to discuss those? I think it partly comes back to what I said earlier about tactics, is the government deals with the immediate problem at the time and puts off the longer term ones for when it really has to deal with them. I don't think that's an approach that's working particularly well when it comes to Scotland. I think we've now got to a position where there seems to be a stable lead in the poll for uh, yes over no. Uh, and yes, this makes the government's life harder. I suppose the one thing I would say in the other way around is the nature of the Brexit we're getting, this very skinny deal, means that there is a real issue for the SNP that it's going to have to confront at some point about the border between England and Scotland. And that is after uh, a government in London has agreed that there should be a referendum, which I see absolutely no prospect of Boris Johnson doing, even if the SNP do as well as the polls suggest they will uh, in the elections uh, in May. So I think in the first place, the government is going is to defer the problem by Scotland by simply refusing a referendum. In the medium term, 
there is a real issue building up here because they are stoking up resentments. And I think the only counter argument that's going to have real, there are two counter arguments to the SMB cause that I think will have a real impact on that debate. The first is currency and the euro. And the second is that border between England and Scotland. And I'm yet to hear a convincing answer about how that border issue will be dealt with. So it will be like deja vu all over again, if and when we get to that debate. Bruno, we sort of hear that Michael Gove thinks that uh, in his role as sort of the, I think, head of the Union Policy Implementation Committee or whatever it is in the Cabinet Office, that actually the saving the union will be helped if there is the sort of deal that um, Boris Johnson wants. Do you think that's the right reading of that? Would the sort of thin deal that Anand's talking about make a difference to the prospects for the SNP? Well, I think the, the kind of deal that's being talked about would make life easier easier in the Gove worldview uh, to keeping uh, the union together. It's significant that Gove seems to have been sidelined a bit um, in terms of the internal market bill that we were talking about um, earlier on. It's again one of the one of the motives seen here on the EU side for the government um, to do a deal. Whether it is possible um, again comes down to again the big uh, picture about how digestible um, Brexit is for British statecraft, for the Union, see it's been pretty, uh, pretty indigestible um, for politics and indeed in terms of, of, of the geopolitical questions um, in the European uh, neighbourhood um, as well about how digestible it actually is um, for the um, EU um, as well as how it has a relationship uh, with a very, very close, very, very big neighbour. That's uh, very, uh, very interesting. Anyone else want to come in on uh, David? Presumably you just look at it and think that's all internal UK stuff, not for us. Katya, I mean, are people in the EU actually interested in the impact of this on the union? We know that the Scots uh, were recruiting for someone to lead a team working on potential accession of an independent Scotland back into the EU. Um, so does the EU watch this and just think, well, we'll just wait to see what happens or? The SNP has been very active in talking to the EU and, you know, it's not, it's not happened overnight that they tried to sign out the EU. Look, if we do get independence, would we immediately sort of be accepted as a, as a member state? These sort of behind the scenes discussions have been ongoing, as have the internal discussions on the EU side. It's not cut and clear, of course, because you have member states like Spain who look at Catalonia and think, oh, we don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to encourage anybody to break away from anybody, you know, so, it, so, so that bleeds into, into, into European Union politics. When it comes to Northern Ireland particularly and the new row again, or the renewed row over uh, the Northern Ireland protocol and what happens on a hard border on the island of Ireland, I think, you know, one of Michelle Barnier's rebuttals on Twitter is to say, I was clear or we were clear from the beginning um, what the complications uh, would be uh, of, of Brexit. And I think that, you know, how many press conferences have we, have, have Bruno and I sat in with Michelle Barnier before COVID-19 when we were sort of watching him on stage where he said, you know, he likes to list reams of consequences of Brexit. And one of those consequences was, was pressure on the United Kingdom and, and, and you know, a threat that is seen by the European Union and they become 
intimately associated and, and of the details of it through all the discussions of, of, of the backstop at the time, um, the, you know, the perceived threat to uh, the Northern Ireland peace process. And so, yes, it is watched. But again, I just have to say that in general, in the European Union, if you watch German TV, if you watch French TV, Brexit is not on every day, to say the least. You know, this is a UK obsession and something that Brussels is dealing with on behalf of the member states. And even Germany, which has a big interest in having a deal with the United Kingdom, Angela Merkel, who cares about having a deal with the United Kingdom, Germany that has the current rotating presidency of the EU. This is not the number one priority. Important, yes. Do they want to deal? Yes. But not something that, you know, is a national preoccupation. You know, what whether to Brexit and whether to United Kingdom. Ireland, isn't, uh, is the Conservative Party now basically, as I think Podrick was suggesting, an English nationalist party which regards the union as a price right, worth paying for the right sort of Brexit? I think there are certainly some who would regard the union as a price worth paying for the right sort of Brexit. I wouldn't characterise the party as a whole like that. There are shades of opinion like in any other party. And it's certainly, I don't think, the view of the government, which is the crucial thing. The government wants to keep the union together. I don't think Boris Johnson wants his legacy to be an independent Scotland. So I think they will devote energy to trying to prevent that outcome. Uh, I wonder whether they're fully aware of the damage that the last four years has uh, done to that cause because you've seen that pretty you know, systematic shifting of the polls as the Brexit process goes on. And ultimately they're gonna to have to square that with trying to convince people that the union's the best place to be, which will be a difficult task. Okay, we've got loads more questions coming in. Um, just one more British politics question before we get on is, we've got a question about Keir Starmer. Um, what's his sort of balancing act on this now? Labour's been incredibly quiet on this. Bruno, have you been surprised by the line Keir Starmer's been taking on Brexit since he became leader? Um, frankly, no. I think it's, a, it's sensible for him um, not to talk about it uh, too much. It's, it's certainly sensible for him to get rid of that sort of patina of, of Ramona, Romana uh, that, that he certainly um, used to have. Um, he's, he's well known in Brussels because he wore a lot of carpet shiny uh, coming here um, when he was uh, working for, 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 for Jezza um, on, uh, on EU policy. There are people here in Brussels who know him well who wonder why he is keeping um, so quiet. Um, I think he's, he is keeping quiet to see how it all shakes out um, and then he will have um, grounds to uh, take up the government uh, in terms of its, of its incompetence or competence and the detail of any uh, future agreement? Is it going to be as ambiguous and as messy as the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example? I've got quite a few questions coming in uh, lower down on the consequences of no deal. Um, uh, we have a UK and a Changing Europe report coming out on this next week called What Would No Deal Mean? I think that's what it's called now. Anand, do you want to give us one minute preview of what would no deal mean for business, um, for citizens and things like that, whether we can go and study abroad, uh, whatever, and watch out for that next week. And then I'm going to move on to something else. Anand, quickly. Well, I think briefly, the, the bottom line is it makes all of our dealings, whether as businesses or as individuals with the European Union, potentially more complicated, potentially more expensive, potentially more time consuming. And that applies whether it's a matter of taking your dog over on holiday to France or getting your insurance or trading with the European Union or seeking certification for your products. Uh, it applies particularly heavily, I think, in the area of services, whereas we've heard there's going to be little, if anything, 
in a deal to help uh, services industries. So the impacts will be significant and far-reaching, both for us as individuals and for the country's economy as a whole. Was that enough? So a question from Graham Seymour. What's the e estimate of the economic impact? God, I can't remember. I can, I can right. dig it up while you ask someone else to talk about something else and come That's back. That's okay. So uh, um, actually, there's quite an interesting, quite technical question about the risks that the UK breaches other bits of the withdrawal agreement, particularly about citizens' rights. So are there other areas, um, maybe Katia or Bruno, where the EU is worried about the UK's full implementation of the withdrawal agreement? And are there any risks on that? We've focused very much on the Northern Ireland provisions, but... I've just, just one sentence for me on that. I think, you know, the, the, the withdrawal agreement was designed as what the, the EU called an, you know, an all-weather agreement. It's supposed to stand up whether or not there is a deal. So, you know, when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol, then it can be overridden if there is a trade deal that, is, that somehow, you know, supersedes the, 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 the arrangements in the withdrawal agreement. Um, otherwise, you can have, uh, you know, Stormont, the power sharing assembly um, in Northern Ireland can, um, can get out of the Northern Ireland Protocol, but only in, in four years time if it, if it so chooses. So the idea of the withdrawal agreement is it stays. So could, could the EU now worry that uh, the UK could renege on other promises that it made or other agreements, pledges that it made inside this treaty? If it, it, it is doing with the Irish protocol, it might worry about that. But as a treaty, it was signed by both sides to just exist in whatever case. So Andrew Charles Dawson is a bit worried that, uh, that the rights of British expats resident in the EU might be under threat if the withdrawal agreement... Um, is challenged or gets suspended or something like that. Is that a real risk, Patrick Bruno? Well, the, the, withdrawal, the withdrawal agreement says um, that um, elements of the withdrawal agreement can be suspended either as a remedy or as part of a dispute, but it says, I think it's part two, isn't it? It says that part two will never be suspended. That is the citizens' rights um, aspect. So, so, so citizens are okay, even if we get into absolute meltdown between the UK and the EU. I want to sort of finish up by looking, uh, David, I'll come to you this first. I mean, you talked about the fact that the language and the activities of the UK is perhaps not going down very well, even if it is just a tactic. But uh, we've got a question here from Christos Katsoulis about what are going to be the long-term consequences of this really quite bruising process that we're going through. Uh, when might we look to a normalisation of EU-UK relations? Indeed, what does the EU think normal long-term UK-EU relations might look like? I'm going to go around and ask all of you this as perhaps your sort of final reflections on where we might be in a year or two years' time. David? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we, we hope for is a good neighbourly relationship with a, a country with which we have strong uh, ties, political ties, economic ties, historic ties. Uh, you heard what uh, Ursula von der Leyen said in her State of the Union speech today. She said, you know, we will never, uh, the enduring friendship and, and affection for the British people, we will never lose this. Uh, so I think that's the attitude. But of course, you then get into some pretty hard-nosed negotiations about commercial interests and financial interests, and you have to find solutions that, that work. What I, what I worry about, to be frank, and then I'd like to, to hear what the British uh, panelists think, is it seems to me that for the Brexiteers, leaving isn't sufficient. 
there has to be still a constant denigration of the EU, constantly bringing the EU back to the front pages of the British papers as, as the enemy, as the, the sort of uh, big threat to, to Britain, a threat when, when Britain was a part of it, and now that Britain is no longer a part of it, it's still a threat. And, and this worries me because I would have thought that at least one of the benefits of Brexit, there aren't many, but one of them might be that we could stop having to have this kind of constant uh, battle uh, about how bad the EU is and how evil it is and how you know it threatens uh, blockades and all this kind of stuff. That that and, and that's not gone unnoticed uh, around continental Europe. Where people are kind of saying, why 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 are they still so obsessed about the EU? They've left for goodness sake. And and we need to get to a point where the UK gets on with its own life, lets the EU get on with its life, and and we we are good neighbours and we find sensible arrangements for how to uh, work together and cooperate and share the same European space uh, for the next. 10 or 15 years and then we see you know we see where we get to uh, and we would still like to be allies of the UK as Bruno said on, on many of the foreign policy issues defense issues uh, I hope that we could cooperate on security and, and crime and so forth though I, I worry about the possible withdrawal from the European Convention on Human Rights if that if that threat was ever uh, materialized but so there, there are lots of very positive things we can do uh, once we, 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 we get this Brexit business finally settled. But I just hope that on the UK side, this obsession with seeming to feel the constant need to attack the EU as an institution can, can cease once, uh, you, you are no longer a member, but once you have definitively left the whole orbit, other than on a basis with which you are in full agreement, then we can maybe get back to more civilized exchanges. Bruno. Um, I think if only, the withdrawal treaty, if only the uh, trade and security negotiations were just about economic and commercial um, interests, I think and that would be much, much easier to deal with. They're not. Um, it's about um, politics. Um, if the negotiations can result in agreements that have as a political settlement or embodied into that political settlement, settlement is that British policy on subsidies um, or, and British policy certainly in other economic areas but also other areas as well isn't bound up in a treaty it isn't a foregone conclusion um, the future of British policy isn't um, uh, bound by treaty then I think then yes obviously life can become uh, much more normal um, and, and, and life um, can go on I think that there, there is a particular phase we're going through at uh, the moment in terms, and I agree with David, the language is, is, is foolish and unfortunate in terms of food blockades um, and all the rest. But a lot of it is going to depend on politics. And there hasn't been, as far as I can tell, proper discussion in the European Union about how to live right next door, 20 odd miles away from a large economy that's the size, combined size of about 18, 18 of the smaller EU um, economies, how you have that relationship. Um, unless it, and this is often what it seems to be like, this idea that Britain or any other country or any other neighbour should just sign on the dotted line um, of what the EU wants. This idea of real quality, that the EU is big and others are small, and that inevitably means that the small uh, bows, is, the, the smaller one bows uh, his or her uh, head. And I think that's the real problem. If, if that politics can be cleared up. But if, if, if you have an agreement that does tangle Britain up, tangles up future governments and future British policy um, with the European Union on, on the grounds that the EU is big, um, so Britain better do as it's told, then, then it was not going to be a happy relationship. 
Katya, are some EU member states thinking actually it's easier inside the EU to make decisions now we've got rid of those pesky Brits from our political institutions and they're not causing difficulties there? I mean, are they beginning to see an easier life without the UK? I, I think that um, EU member states still really, really regret Brexit. And yes, the UK wasn't always the most comfortable member, but a lot of countries used to like to hide behind the UK and not just small ones. I'm thinking of Germany that, you know, is supposed to stand side by side with France just because of the internal politics in the EU. But when it came to the single market, for example, was much more allied to what the UK was thinking about competition regulations, getting rid of red tape, but it would quite happily hide behind the UK in its position and is sorely missing it. You see the Netherlands trying to sort of take the UK's place. It's not the same thing. So, I don't, I mean, if you listen to, to Ursula von der Leyen's speech today, the president of the European Commission, it sounded very much like the hopes of a European Union that's going to get, pull more and more powers from the member states, whether it's, she was talking about public health policy or finishing banking union and the, you know, you know, so for those kind of ideas, for those who believe in more Europe, they may say, well, look, now that the UK is gone, we've got more of a chance. But the general sense is really of loss with the UK. And apart from politicians like Ursula von der Leyen, on the ground, when you talk to the citizens of European Union member countries, there is no huge desire to live in a federalist state. This is not what people are looking for, is one single Europe. Yes, they may want to pull competencies to fight you know, on big issues like migration, perhaps, um, but not just to sort of pull everything into one federal state. So no, I don't believe that. And I also think just on what, what Bruno said about, you know, politics and the EU not really thinking about how to deal with an, an independent non-EU member, uh, United Kingdom. I think also in a microcosm, you can see this in the trade negotiations now. It's almost a clash of ideology, sort of the religion, if you like, on one side in, in Downing Street of sovereignty over everything, even if that's not actually really practical when you make trade agreements with other countries, never mind the European Union. Um, on the other side, there's a kind of, you know, one insider in, in the EU describes it to me as, as the cult of the single market, almost in a religious adherence to the single market. And very much like Bruno says, just this assumption that, you know, the EU sort of spreads its regulations, its ideas, its way of seeing the world, and, and most immediately, you know, on its neighbors next door. If that microcosm can be solved within the trade agreement, and if there can be some kind of uh, entente agreed uh, within that, then I think, you know, that will really sort of smooth things for afterwards. But at the moment, it is a clash of ideologies. And I think the outcome is not known right now. It's not good enough both sides wanting a deal. It doesn't mean there is going to be a deal. The EU view is ultimately that will be decided in Downing Street when Boris Johnson decides, is it politically more expedient to make the concessions and make the deal or politically more expedient to go ahead with no deal and point the accusing finger uh, at the European Union? Anand, we talked a bit about the uh, short-term effects of no deal versus deal. What are the long-term effects on the relationship if we end up uh, leaving on the uh, 1st of January with no deal uh, for the UK-EU relationship? I think deeply damaging and scarring, and it goes beyond the UK-EU relationship. It strikes me as infeasible that you know, in the event of the kind of uh, finger pointing and recrimination that I see coming out of no deal, that the UK will happily sit behind beside its partners in NATO and act as if nothing has happened. I think this will, this will have a, a spillover effect on relations more broadly than simply with the European Union. I think that will be very, very damaging and will impact not just our ability to 
you know, as Katya said, if we get a deal, it'll be relatively easy to add to it going forward. That won't be anywhere near as easy, but also to work together on other completely separate issues, uh, whether it's, you know, working together towards UN climate change objectives, working together on shared security and geopolitical threats and so on. So I, I'm, I'm quite gloomy about the diplomatic repercussions of no deal. But in the event of a deal, I think one or two years is simply too short a time horizon. I don't see this government, even in the event of a deal, suddenly striking a positive tone about the EU. I'm pretty convinced that amongst the Brexiters, there are some who really want the EU to fail. Not all of them, but some of them. But I think over a sort of 10, 15 year time period, it's then that we'll see whether this settles down. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty convinced that we are going to be in a long-term negotiation with the European Union for many, many years to come, as are all its neighbours. Okay, we're going to call it a day there. Apologies for going slightly over time. Thank you for putting in so many questions. Uh, Martha, who is our event manager behind the scenes, has asked me to remind you all to fill in the survey about what you thought of that. Um, and we will get the results and look on them and act on them. Thanks very much for engaging so much. But particular thanks and let's uh, virtually applaud David O'Sullivan stepping in at the last minute for Stefan de Rink. Uh, thank you very much, David. Bruno Waterfield, Katya Adler and Arnand Menon. And as I said, next week, uh, our report on what would no deal mean? So please look out for that one coming to an inbox or a website near you and do check out our new website. There are so many blogs on what the internal market bill means. I think every academic in the country has now written for us about that. Uh, so please do read those and you can fill your boots with lots and lots of analysis there. So please look at that, check out our new podcast as well. So thank you all very much and look out for more Isolation Insight events. So thank you all very much and goodbye. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.